So, we're continuing our series, and the series is called Matter Matters. If you haven't been around for uh, the last several weeks, just really quickly, this series is a bit of an exploration on what is it to handle physical things. What is it that, the, that God has put in the world that we are to steward, to look after? It's a series seeking a vision for Christ-centered materiality. Not materialism, materiality. How do we handle the physical things around us? And we've been centering this uh, entire se- series in the scripture from 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 where it says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This, is this question from Paul. Do you not know that your body is the dwelling place of God? Do you not know that God dwells in you with you? And therefore, as a result of that, the way you live matters. What you do matters. How you handle things matters. And so last week we spoke about sexuality. Uh, The week before that we spoke about having an integration around mind um, and body, not sort of putting one above the other or separating them. And over the last few weeks before that we've spoken about the temple and what the temple is and how our body can be like a temple. And we've just done a bit of big picture work around dualism, Greek dualism and what is actually at play in our world. We often separate these things. So we'd love you to go check out our podcast if you have not heard any of that stuff. Go have a listen. But today, what we're going to be talking about is part five. So last week we spoke about being sexual beings. This week we're talking about being consuming beings. We're going to talk about what it is to consume because we have a body and a body needs fuel. Amen? Gary Chapman wrote in his book, The Five Love Languages, that we as human beings have a way of showing and receiving love. His hypothesis is that we share love through five different ways. Hopefully you've read this and hopefully you know this, but here's his five ways. We show love through words of affirmation. We show love and receive love through acts of service, through physical touch, through gifts, and through quality time. Five love languages. Well, I'm here to say today right off the bat, I think Gary is wrong. I actually think there is a sixth love language. And that sixth love language is food. If you want to show me that you love me, have me at your table for a delicious meal. My love tank fills up. Some of my greatest moments of feeling loved or showing love have involved summers of barbecuing big hunks of beef for groups of friends or making a big fresh salad from our garden for friends or making that or friends who have made that exquisite smoked salsa that they put on their tacos or a winter arriving at someone's home and they've been cooking lamb shanks for the afternoon or they're wrestling with homemade pasta and how to get it dry in time for putting it into the water. If, if you invite me over for a picnic, I am going to be bringing a good smoked cheese and a jar of gherkins with me. Um, if you're inviting me over to watch some sport with you, I'm going to be putting balsamic vinegar into that kiwi onion dip because it needs a hit of something to make it a little fancier. I'm going to be hitting the snacky changi chips pretty hard. And, if, and I would describe a recent life-changing experience in my life as this. Someone told me to put nutmeg into my white sauce roux. And it changed my life. Anyone else had that little secret blowing? Yes, Ellen, yes. White sauce, put some nutmeg in it. Oh my goodness. All right, game changer. Now maybe love is a bit of a, maybe it's a too strong a word. Maybe it's too strong. But I do want to say this. I really, 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 really like food. I really like the space that food makes. I really like what it does as we gather around. So set a table. 
open a bottle of good wine or pass me a cold APA, put on some good music, say grace, and I am there. I feel on top of the world. Now, some of you are not that passionate. I get that. I get it. But here's the truth for all of us today. We all live our lives revolving around food and drink. We all do. You know, we live fascinated by food. We live fascinated by food as a culture. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is Ed Gamble and James Acaster, the two comedians. They have a podcast called Off Menu. And in this podcast, these two comedians sit down for an episode and they interview a guest and they post a hypothetical conversation to them. They ask them, what would be your dream night out in a dream menu situation? You know, are you going to start with sparkling water or still? Are you going to have bread or poppadoms? What are you going to have as a starter? What are you going to have as your main? What are you going to have as a side? What are you going to drink with that? And then what are you going to have for dessert? As, as, over the course of an hour, James A. Caster and Ed Gamble talk to their guest about those questions. And already I can see some of you starting to think about your answers. We are fascinated by food. We can imagine a way of answering some of those questions. And some of our answers to some of those things, where would I go for my dream starter? Where would I go? Well, some of our answers might come from something like Instagram, because this weird trend has developed in the last 10 years where the human race has gone to dine out. Someone brings some really good food in front of them. And rather than you know sniffing and starting to eat, we pull our phones out and we take a photo of it. We take a photo of it and we put it up on a social media website and we start to hashtag it and share it fascinating little thing that we've started to do there. Um, Why do we need food critics when we can actually just hashtag search the best brunch in town for the best eggs Benny? You know, some restaurants have blown up. They've become famous on the gram. And what that means is rather than just serving up with the goal of being desirable for our taste buds, now it also has to be really desirable for our eyes as well as a scrollable object. We are fascinated by food. And due to this intro, most of you have probably started to think about the answer, like, where where do you want to go for lunch today? What is next after this? What are your next plans? Will it be a cafe? Am I going home for some Vogel's Vogel's toast, double toasted with some Marmite and some melted butter? You know, that's what I'm doing. Um, Something at home? What do I feel like? Who will I eat with? Those are all the kinds of questions you might be starting to think about as we journey through this. Let's go to some stats. You know, other than our housing, our food bill is the next best thing, next big thing we will pay for every week. You know, according to Stats NZ, the average Auckland couple with two kids, so two adults and two kids, spends $244 weekly on a basic diet, $319 for a moderate diet, or $382 for a more liberal diet. That's a whopping $138 difference every week between a more basic diet or a more liberal diet, which if you times that out over a year, is $7,176. And if you compound that over a 10-year period with 3% interest, the difference between those two diets is $80,000 between a simple diet or a more liberal diet in a home of two adults and two kids. That's just the difference in the diet. That's a lot of money. You know, back in 2000, in the year 2000, the average Kiwi household was spending one-fifth of its budget on takeaways and one-fifth of its budget on fruit and veg. But in 2020, just 20 years later, both of those numbers have moved in different directions. 
Now the average household is spending a quarter of its budget on takeaways. So it's spending more on takeaways, and it's fallen to only spending 13% on fruit and veg. From one-fifth down to 13%, from 20% down to 13%. We are choosing convenience and prepackaged food more and more. And with the rise of delivery services like HelloFresh and My Food Bag, or frozen meals that go straight from the storage of your freezer to your table in 30 minutes, it is just showing us our need for quick food solutions in a very busy life. You know, and if you can't cook, if cook's not, cooking's not your thing, Uber Eats has recently passed Uber Rideshare as the more successful part of the Uber company. Over one third of evening primetime TV tonight will be ads of food. And in a single ad break, sometimes even over half of those ads are the topic of food. You know, add to this alcohol. We are an alcohol-focused culture. You know, whether it's wine mums on social media, whether it's binge drinking blowouts, whether it's the latest craft beer that you simply must try, the hazy, or whether it's the two-e catch a thousand dollars at the 2020 cricket, our drinking landscape is one of alcohol being oversupplied and advertised heavily. You know, over the last 30 years, we've seen dramatic increases in the number of places that sell alcohol, the affordability and the types of alcoholic products available, and the use of innovative marketing strategies to advertise them. You know, today there are over 11,000 places across Aotearoa that you could go buy some alcohol. Beginning in 1989, new liquor laws increased the availability of alcohol into our communities with wine entering into supermarkets. And then 10 years later, beer became available in supermarkets in 1999. And it's not hard to notice that there are more liquor outlets concentrated in low economic suburbs than there are in the higher socioeconomic advantaged suburbs around our city. In total, New Zealanders are spending about $5 billion every year on alcohol. And in 2020, it contributed $1.193 billion of government revenue in the form of excise tax. But in contrast, alcohol misuse is estimated to cost New Zealand society about $7.85 billion a year. This includes the cost resulting from lost productivity, unemployment, as well as justice, health, ACC, and welfare costs. The costs of alcohol harm exceed that of any other drug drug available in our country. It is estimated that one in 10 of all ACC claims are attributed to alcohol-related injuries. One-fifth of the New Zealand police budget is spent on alcohol-related incidents. More than 800 New Zealanders are going to die this year from alcohol-related harm. That's more than two people per day. And finally, although we can't put a number on this, a high proportion of harmful sexual advances or worse have involved alcohol. Eating and drinking fuels much more than just a hungry belly. It also fuels a hungry soul. You know, we eat and drink because at the end of the day, it's fun. It actually releases endorphins, makes us feel good. We eat and drink because we have to. Our body needs fuel. We eat and drink because it can be done with friends. It can be done in community. Or we eat and drink in celebration on a big scale for a big event. Or we eat and drink intimately with just one other that we love over a romantic dinner. Or we eat and drink in secret when we are alone and we need to numb and we don't want to feel the pain. We eat and drink when life is hurting and when we need to be consoled. We eat and drink for a very wide uh, range of reasons. And so the question today is what is your relationship with consuming food and drink? What's your relationship like with it? 
What's it like? And a little bit like last week, I just want to say again, there's so much grace in the room today as we hold this. We aren't naive to what some people will be holding in the moment as we ask that question together. And with grace, we want to hold this together as a community and say you're safe here and you're allowed to hold those things. And if you asked me this question at different times of my life, I would have given you a bunch of different answers. So a little time travel Uh, with Dan Sheed for a moment. When I was growing up as a boy heading into being a teenager, my consumption was simply this. What is going to satisfy my sweet tooth and what is going to fill the raging hunger within my belly? And my mum's cooking was predominantly just meat and three veg. Three veg is loose. Um, She used to steam it so much that sometimes it was grey. So meat and three something, anyway, on the plate. Um, And when when she wasn't looking, when she wasn't looking, I would raid uh, her, her Tupperware of baking. I would raid that packet of Tim Tams. Anyone else do the thing where you pull it out further and take one from further on and then push it back in? So like, yeah, Rob's nodding. Yeah. The worst it got, the lowest it got was coming home from school and drinking the sweetened condensed milk straight out of the tin that had been left over in the door of the fridge. It was a low point, but man, so, so good. Or after school, eating through packets of instant noodles, toasted sandwiches that were flowing with melted cheese, and oh so many pies. I actually didn't have a very delicate taste bud sort of thing going on at that point. If it was sweet and if it filled me up, I was into it and I wanted it. But then I became a teenager and there was the arrival of a TV show that literally changed my appreciation for food forever. I still remember the night when I was sitting on the couch with my mum and my dad was out and my mum and I decided to watch this new TV show that was coming on. It was this hip English dude called Jamie Oliver riding a Vespa, wearing a Puma tracksuit jacket with jeans and Adidas sneakers and the intro to his show was called The Naked Chef. I had to watch and see where this was going. His enthusiasm for food was infectious and the first 50 seconds he had me, he was describing the flavour of a pesto for a chicken salad and I suddenly found myself salivating on the couch. Then he poured some sweet Thai chili sauce over a tub of cream cheese. And I turned to my mum and said, do we have this in the fridge? I want to make this. She said, no. But she did on the next shop bring those things home and we gave it a try. And oh man, it was good. Chili and Philly. Oh, delicious. Through watching his show, I started to cook a lot more. I started to cook, actually. I discovered what food could be as an obsession. Whether it was flavors and textures, sweet and savory, hot and cold, chili and sour and acid, man, I was hooked and it was all starting to take me somewhere. And I think that's where my love language of food begins. I think it begins with Jamie Oliver, a tub of cream cheese, a a bottle of sweet Thai chili sauce, some chopped coriander and a packet of snacks, crackers. Gourmet eating at its best. Interestingly though for me, Drinking at this time, when I was going through all this, wasn't on the scene for me. I was a pastor's kid, which meant I was often living, I was living, not even often, I was always living under the scrutiny of my behavior. And so drinking was just completely off the cards. But what I did do over those years as I started to grow up and get my driver's license and whatnot was I started to be the sober driver for a lot of my friends. And I saw horrible things as I would go to weekend parties and watch my adolescent friends and their drinking culture play out in rural New Zealand where there's not much to do. 
And so I started to play in bands. I started to play music. And as a result of playing in the punk hardcore scene, I actually started to buy into an idea from that culture. That it is something called being straight edge. It took me a long time to find this, but it's the poster I had on my wall. Alcohol sucks. Good, clean life. Straight edge. Now, some of you aren't going to get... Some of you are just going to know... You're not going to know at all what I just did. But essentially what happens is in, um, in the 80s, in the, uh, especially in the Western East Coast um, of America, punk and hardcore scene, uh, because bands would play in uh, clubs for an under 18 age group, a kid who would walk into an under 18 show and couldn't drink at the bar would get an X put on their hand, which said I'm under 18 and I can't drink. So what Straight Edge was, was it was a posture of, of adopting the same idea as an adult and saying no to drugs, no to alcohol and having a clean lifestyle. And so what people who were straight edge would do is they'd put X's on their hands like their under 18 counterparts to say, yep, no drugs, no drinking for me. And so that's what it was. It was a subculture of a punk and hardcore scene. And in my involvement in that, I for many years stood abstaining from drink and drugs. It was actually not my Christian faith that led me down to imagining what I could do with that. It was actually my involvement in a music scene. My answer when friends would say, why aren't you drinking? And you've walked into a party with a tin box of ginger beer instead. Yeah, that's right. Bundaberg. Uh, when I would walk in with 10 Bundaberg ginger beers and I would uh, drink those for the night instead, when they would ask, why aren't you drinking? I would say, because I'm straight edge. That was my answer. And then in my 20s, I left home. I moved to Auckland and I actually lightened up a whole lot. <laughs> And I started to enjoy uh, how to have a drink, how to have a beer with a barbecue, how to enjoy and appreciate a really good wine. And I seem to know what I'm talking about, but I still actually don't. I'm that guy's like, yeah, good wine, yeah, yeah. Um, I enjoyed having drinks in certain situations, but never anything that blew out, not, never anything that kind of went too far. The, the lingering of being the teenager I was has haunted me even still to today. And I have a very clear rule about how I drink, and I have very clear rules about engaging in that. One rule in particular is that I never drink alone. I never just sit at home and have several cold beers. That's just not what I do. I always only have one or two and I only have them in the company of others. It's a rule I've had since I started drinking in my early 20s and I still have it to this day. When I was 23 though, a huge moment happened for me. When I was 23, I got engaged to my now wife, Gab, and my friends threw me a bachelor party. Now, for my wedding, I have Scottish fuckapapa. And so I was going to be embracing that. And we were all going to, I was going to be getting married in a kilt. And my groomsmen were wearing kilts too. And so for my stag, they embraced this for the theme of my stag. It was called Dan versus Man. And it was a Scottish-themed stag day. We did things like tossing the caber, which was actually just tossing a really massive fence post until it broke, which Bjorn Brickle actually broke from memory. He broke it in half. So he's more manly than me. Um, but what we did at that day was we enjoyed a bunch of activities and we sat around a fire at the end of the day and I cooked dinner for everyone on this fire. It was just awesome. And at the end of the day, something significant happened. My best man, Johnny, came along and he gave me a present and that present was a bottle of Oban single malt scotch whiskey. I had never had my own bottle of whiskey before. And as we opened it and as we tried it by the fire that night, I fell in love. Did I fall in love because it was a, as Gab likes to call it, fire drink? No. No, I fell in love because there was something connecting this moment of this beverage with all of the story that I was sitting in. I was drinking my heritage. I was drinking a drink of a story of my people, my land. I was drinking something that was more than just what was in the bottle. And many years later, 
in Scotland with my parents, we would visit the farm that my family grew up on for over 360 years. It's on the River Spey, and if you know anything about whiskey, the Spey River is one of the big parts of, of the, whiskey, um, the whiskey industry of Scotland. And my, my farm of the Sheeds sits right on the edge of the River Spey. Water from that river that has been made into whiskey. Grains from the paddocks that has been made into whiskey. Peat that has been used to, uh, to dry the hops, the barley, sorry. There is something about being able to drink something from where the earth and the farm met from my ancestors that's incredibly romantic to me. And sometimes when I am sitting having a good drink of scotch with a friend and we talk about this, there's almost a tear that might come out of my eye. It is so romantic to me as I think of this product that has come as a gift, an incarnate story for me to enjoy from the other side of the world. Now, you might just be thinking... Dan, is that just some trendy marketing stuff off the back of a bottle? No, no, it's not. For me, it is the way I look at that beverage, a beverage which can cause so much harm, or it can be a beverage which is a gift of the land, a gift of craftsmanship, a gift that has taken care and patience of 14 years to make and to be delivered into my glass. And as such, I treat it as the gift it is, and I choose to celebrate it well. I choose not to abuse it, but to celebrate it. Which brings me to this idea today. Food and drink is a gift. It's a gift. The scriptures say in Ecclesiastes, the people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. Eating and drinking is God's gift to mankind. Maybe another way we could say this is we could change the word gift to the word grace. It is God's grace to us, God's provision in our lives. You know, before meals, most Christians will take a moment to pray and say grace. Right? That's what we do. We say grace. And I just wonder what your grace has been. Because it's a wonderful moment to check your theology for food. What do you say as you sit down and you eat at a table? What do you say to God? What do you declare to your guests? What is it that comes out of your mouth as you say that prayer? Because it's a highly theological moment. Uh, we've been teaching our little boy, Jimmy, who's nearly three. We've been teaching him some prayers, daily prayers. And one of the prayers we always pray is the prayer at dinner time. At dinner time we say grace. We teach him this is what we're going to pray now. We're going to pray grace. And so we've been teaching him. And now he can just do it freestyle. He, well, not freestyle. He does it himself. He doesn't need us to teach him what to say. And so even just last night, we said it's time for grace. And he bunches his eyes up tight. And he goes, thank you, Lord, for the food. Thank you, Lord, for this table. Thank you, Lord, that you love me. In Jesus' name, amen. And digs into one of the dumplings that we had prepared. What do you say when you say grace? What words come out of your mouth? What are you thankful for? Are you even thankful? Has food just become presumed for you? Are you just on autopilot? Or is there a deeper connection in you for the, for the gift that it is in sustaining you and the gift it is to be enjoyed? 
Because if grace is a gift, what's the gift you're acknowledging? What's the connection for you in that moment? Food is God's provision. You know, we have been gifted by God a very good earth which makes for us what we need. We have been blessed to live off it and to enjoy it. The Bible says in the scriptures, here's a little bit of a map here from the, from the start of the scriptures. God gave mankind plants and fruit for food in the start of Genesis there. The Garden of Eden contained trees that were good for food from which they could eat. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food. God gave plants to all the creatures for food. And from the earth comes food. And then just to change it from plants-based stuff, let's go to meat. God gave animals to man as food in Genesis 9. They are the creatures that you, these are the creatures you may eat in Leviticus 11 verse 2. Distinguishing between what you may eat and what you may not eat in Leviticus 11.47. And then even like rules on slaughtering and eating the meat in Deuteronomy. Like God has put this in place for us as a way of sustaining us and being um, giving this into us, uh, into our lives. And then who can forget some of the other key events of the scriptures like the manna from heaven that was given to the Israelites as they made their way through the desert towards the promised land, gathering up their harvests. Once they were in the promised land, they could gather up their harvest into this bountiful moment of festival and they could offer it to God. Um, wine at a wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. Fish and loaves where he miraculously fed several thousand. Bread and wine to remember the Passover. Fish on a fire at a beach for the resurrection breakfast after he has risen. Also an early church who was very committed to sharing meals together and taking of the Lord's Supper. That's a very quick and brief tour, but it does show us there's a lot of food in the Bible, a lot of food. It's all through the scriptures from start to end. Food is central. You know, if we take a historical look at early humanity, everything functioned around the system of harvesting and cooking food. That's what a community did. They had to put so much energy into it. They were not communities of convenience like us. They did not have all of these things like kitchens and things. They had to do things very primitively. It was about keeping a fire going. It was about collecting water. It was about hunting. It was about growing. It was about gathering. It was about preparing. It was about cooking. And it was an entirely communal activity. It was done in community. And if someone did something that meant they had to be excluded from that tribe or from that community, think about that for a moment. Think about how severe that punishment is. Because what it's saying is we are excluding you from this system that we have to have everything we need sustained. You have to go and do it yourself. That's a huge punishment because someone's being ejected from the network of, of being sustained. The demand of food must be met it's in our bellies every day and reminds us that there is a demand here. And if you do not feed me, I will react. It has been a central activity of community and people from the beginning of time. And even today, food is still very central. I think of all the chats that you have around food with friends. You know, even for us as a staff team, every Wednesday we have our staff meeting and, and it's been really interesting to note just how often the first 10 minutes is food chat. Food chat as we talk about, you know, tahini chocolate tarts that Ella makes or whether Tori is actually a vegetarian, you know, hey, hey Tori, you know, you know, or, um, or as we talk about things like where to get the best samosas, like this is just the chat as we start our meetings. Food is central to so much of the activity of our lives, which brings me to the next point. Food is complicated. You know, everything you eat 
has an entire ecosystem around it. Whether it's the people involved, like growers, farmers, processors, storers, buyers, sellers, inspectors, store workers, chefs, marketers, consumers, it all is this massive, 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 massive amount of people to get things to our tables. There's systems of commerce around food, imports, exports, tariffs, treaties. There's resource around it, a huge amount of resource around it. Think soil and seasons, water and light, farms, oceans, transport, road, rail, forklifts, pallets, grocery stores, big ones, small ones, farmers markets, restaurants, cafes, little hole in the wall places. It's all this big complicated ecosystem making food for mankind to eat. Which brings me to the next little point. Food has a story. That ecosystem reminds us that actually Everything we eat had at some point a farm involved. Every chicken, every chicken nugget once was a chicken, apparently. Every whiskey was once grain from a paddock and water from a river. Every salad was once leaves soaking up the sunlight. Everything has come from somewhere. The question is, do you appreciate that or not? You know, sometimes for us in our home, we're cooking simple meals quickly with some store-bought ingredients. Other times, the ones that bring joy to my soul, we're cooking significantly with food that we know the story of. Things like when we've managed to cook entirely from our own veggie boxes on our back lawn. Sometimes near the end of summer, we're able to do like a whole week of eating what we have made for the for months leading up to it. And there's something even a little bit more special when the story of the food involved maybe a friend who dropped off a fish for you after they got back from their fishing trip. Or a friend who drops off a cut of meat after they get back from their big hunt. Everything we have, everything we eat has a story. And it's up to us to learn it. It's up to us to know it. It's up to us to be sure that we are aware of what's going on behind what we are eating. Food is freedom. I'm going to just do a quote here from Dr. Jason Struble. He says this, The ability to know where your next meal is coming from is empowering. If you don't know how to answer that question, it becomes all-encompassing. As the hunger pains increase, you will do whatever it takes to get the next meal on the table for you or your family. For food, people will do things unimagined. Food is freedom from this pressure. You know, for those of us who don't have to think too much about how we get our food, we live with an enormous weight off our shoulders every day. But for those of us who do have to think about it often, you know, today we acknowledge that there is a weight in that. And this is why the early church of Acts put so much emphasis on sharing food together. And this is why the early church of Acts prioritized an entire ministry of distributing food to the widows. And this is why we as a community give so much energy every week to the feeding of the hungry of this area here at Gratis, whether it's here at Gratis Table or out on the street with Gratis Street. And it's why we as a community give meals to new parents after they've had their babies 
And it's why we give meals to people who have just gotten out of hospital. And it's why we give meals to people after they are mourning or grieving a sudden loss. It's because if we can provide a meal and people don't have to think about where it's coming from, it's actually liberating. It takes a pressure off our shoulders. To relieve that pressure can be the work of the church. It can be the work of a disciple. It can be your work. It can be a taste of the kingdom of God. Simply providing some food to someone can bring relief, which brings me to another point. Food is justice. Because in the scriptures, whenever it says the poor, what it's saying is the hungry. You could literally swap that in, that idea in and out, or out throughout the whole scriptures, which, side note, also means whenever it says the rich, it's saying the fed. Makes you think, doesn't it? But the hungry are the poor. So every time you read the Bible and it speaks of the poor, it's not some social class tucked away. It's those who are hungry. It's always dealing with food. And the church can step into the space of using food for the purpose of justice here. And this is what we're called to. You know, in Isaiah, there's this prophecy that's being laid out. And there's this bit here about the kind of work that God wants of the people of Israel. And just there it says, share your food with the hungry. It's this work of justice that you can do as the people of God. Or what about where Jesus says in Matthew 25? We probably all know the story, probably not well, where Jesus uses this idea and he says, you know, for I, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. And the disciples say, but when do we do that? Like we We haven't done that. But he says this in verse 40. I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When you serve those who are in need, when you serve those in this act of justice with food, you are doing something of the kingdom of God. Which brings me to a couple of last points. Food is political. Powerful countries always have lots of food. And in the story of Israel, they were on top of the world when their harvests were plentiful and when their stores were full. That's when they were on top, when they had lots of food. What did they complain about in the desert? That they didn't have food, like in Egypt. But when they were back on top, they had a full store. For Paul in the Greco-Roman world, and um, they had these rulers, these Roman rulers who would feast and hold these big parties as a symbol of their wealth and power. They used meals as a symbol for this. I was just listening to a really good history podcast where they explained how during World War II, rationing and growing home gardens actually meant the war could be won. This historian said, yep, soldiers and weapons are a big part of warfare. But what most people don't realize is actually stomachs are too. And he went on to say about how, yep, it took soldiers and weapons to win a war, but it equally took gardens. I thought, what a profound thought. The powerful countries are the countries who can feed people in times of need. They get through it because food is political. It's bigger than just some meals on a table. It's actually an ecosystem of our countries. And whoever has the most food will ultimately be able to enjoy the most of freedom together. You know, it's important for us just to take stock today and just remind ourselves we live in a land where when the crunch of COVID came along, we were able to keep food flowing and going around our country pretty well. We have a pretty good country. We should be reminded of that today. Food has an impact. Whether it's fats and sugars that lead to us putting on weight, whether it's alcohol making us feel numb or incoherent, or whether it's too much fiber doing whatever it is fiber does, 
Food also has an impact on our boundaries and our addictive tendencies. You know, ask anyone who struggles to control themselves with overeating and they will be able to tell you the way that food makes them feel. Well, it makes them feel comforted or it makes them feel guilty. It makes them feel good or it makes them feel bad. This is because food has such power. It's so impacting on us. Some of us feel in control. Some of us feel out of control because food is powerful. And even more than just the impact it has on us as individuals, food also at a macro level has impact. It has impact in regards to the production of it around the world and actually just how tender that balance can be on the, the way that the food chain works in our, in our, in our um, globe. There's an impact to our food. And I said this in the first week of the series, but I remember reading about how when kale started to become really popular in the West, suddenly all these South American countries were running out of it. This thing they've been living off for, for generations. That's how the chain, this is how this thing works. It literally has impact on others. And so with all of that in mind, how can we respect and honor consumption? With all that in mind, I know it's a lot today, but, but living in a way that would be healthy and balanced with all of that considered. Well, some key markers to the problem that I've just touched on today would be this, that as consuming beings, we are often living in excess, we're living in convenience, we're living in ignorance, and we're living in ambivalence. So to be a healthy consumer, to consume food and drink well, I think there's a couple of counter practices that we could put in place to tell a different narrative to these things. I think they're the things of the kingdom of God, and I think they're the things of a disciple of Jesus. So instead of excess, instead of binging, instead of blowing out, we can practice simplicity. This is to learn to enjoy that less is more. We aren't called to binge, we are called to be satisfied. Those two things are very different. It's not that you don't feast, you are allowed to feast. The kingdom of God is like a feast and a banquet. But you should also feast when it's the right time to. You cannot live in a feast and a banquet every single meal. You actually need to choose to have some rules for how you will feast. And actually, it will make the feasts a lot better. They'll be even more significant. And what if you chose to actually simplify things down every week to some simpler practices of eating with some different measures of whether that was a good meal or not? And what if you were able to then create some margin so that instead of eating out in a cafe three or four times a week for lunch, you took some simple sandwiches to work and just had a simpler lunch and instead of spending that money at the cafe that you would have been spending on, why not give that money to gratis here so that the hungry could be fed with that money that you've now created a margin for? Or when you're going for a grocery shop, what if you bought some simpler ingredients and with the difference of your budget, you then bought a few extra cans to drop off to the city mission on your way to work the next day? You know, choosing to live a simpler life with our meals means that we could then have some margin to be generous in some pretty beautiful ways. And like I said before, it actually makes feasts and banquets stand out. They actually become even more prominent when we have them because we aren't living as feasting people all the time. Instead of convenience, what if we practiced fasting? Learning to strip away our needs for demands to be met quickly and instantly through this consumeristic mindset we have got. What if we could go about being a bit more sober and deliberate about the way we eat and drink and prepare our meals? Maybe instead of four or five meals of super convenience this week, 
What if you just had one? And what if you took a rest on one of the days and you had none? What if you had a simple couple of meals where you would have normally had quite some lavish ones and you instead skipped one of them to pray and to become hungry and to then become aware of just what's going on in your body as you have had this ache for food met so many times you've forgotten what it feels like? What if you tried that as a way of having the convenience aspect of our consumeristic nature kind of go to war with it a little bit? What if instead of ignorance, we practiced learning? You know, engaging in knowing where your food has come from. Watch some documentaries. Inquire to some friends who are vegans or vegetarians. Why do you do that? What, what's actually the reason? What's your conviction? You know, think about the companies that you buy from regularly. Uh, what do they stand for? Is it actually ethical? Or do they take shortcuts? Is it even good for you? What's the story? Do some research, get interested, investigate what it is that's going on behind the food that goes on your plate. And lastly, instead of ambivalence, what if we practiced intentionality? Intentionality. To choose to be a person who doesn't just autopilot when it comes to food and drinking, but to actually think about it properly. You know, what if we were to say that the way we eat is a discipleship area in our lives? What would that change in regards to how you eat? How would that change the way you drink? How would that change the way that you choose to use the things that you are eating and drinking every day? You know, Gab and I, we actually, um, we uh, do Meat Free Monday every Monday as a way of trying to practice an intentional way of doing a different way of eating in a more sustainable way. We have simpler meals during the week sometimes. And on Friday because it's our Sabbath, we always make that a special meal. That's not to say that it's all the trimmings or anything like that. It just stands out during the week as something more important. And it's interesting how when we've started to do that over the last several months, we start to look forward to Friday in a whole different way because it's intentionally in our calendar as a special moment. And so all that to say, as we finish up, in our series, we have been looking at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, where, where Paul says, do you not know your temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's a vision from him of what it is to be a person where your body is containing the presence of God and therefore the way you live matters. And last week, we looked at his argument from 1 Corinthians 6 about what it is to be a sexual being. Just a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 10, he starts to have another conversation with the church of Corinth about their eating and their drinking. This time he's discussing the same vision, but he's applying it into a new area. He's applying it into how do they take of the Lord's table correctly? He's applying it into should you eat food that's been offered to idols? He's applying it into, by the way, the answer is no. Um, he talks about going about being thankful for God's provision in their day-to-day life. He talks about how to eat at another person's home. He does this beautiful thing here. And all of it, again, is wrapped up in the same vision as earlier. He's asking that same question. Can you see the vision here? that you have, to, you have to think about these things. They're not just rules. It's a, it's a vision to live towards. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he sums it up with this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. 
I wish I could go back in time and tell the 20-year-old straight-edge punk that line. I I wish I could look myself in the eyes and say, stop doing it because of this like cultural badge you want to wear. And instead, think of this vision. Think about eating and drinking for the glory of God. You know, I wonder if we could walk out today and our next meal we're about to eat. I wonder if we could have this vision in our minds as we sit down to that table, or as we grab that sandwich from a bakery, or as we go home to start preparing it. What would it look like to consume what we're about to consume for the glory of God? What would drinking with friends after work look like for the glory of God? What would a grocery shop look like for the glory of God? What will a feast with friends on a special occasion look like for the glory of God? What would a night alone watching a movie with some snacks look like for the glory of God? What's the big picture? What's the everyday small choices? What does it look like to be generous to the hungry for the glory of God? God. Well, here's the thing. As a consuming being, which we all are, none of us are out of this one today. We are all consuming beings. May we consider Paul's words, his vision to consider as we eat our next meals, as we drink our next drinks. May this become a vision for us to see that we could mature into being people who eat and drink for the glory of God, who has given us this glorious thing to begin with. Amen.